From claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. EWTN Radio presents The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter. Hey, we have a great show ahead for you today. And uh, for those people in the Midwest, like myself, I hope you're surviving the uh, onslaught of snow these days. Get out your shovels and snow blowers and, uh, and offer it all up. I, I know that's what I'm going to be trying to do as we uh, make it through this tough time of winter. We had a, a nice, <laughs> we were coasting along pretty nicely for a while there. But anyways, uh, let's warm our hearts with some uh, discussion of miracles. And uh, for tomorrow, uh, we have a big feast day coming up on January 14th. We've got the feast day of the infant of Prague. That'll be January 14th. And we'll be joined today by Father David McAvoy from the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague. Uh, that's uh, based at the uh, National Shrine of St. Therese in Darien, Illinois. So uh, I've been there and I've seen that uh, seen, seen their exhibit there. And so people can check them out as well at infantprog.org. We'll also be uh, doing a replay of an interview with Ursuline's sister, Carolyn Brockland, talking to us about Our Lady of Prompt Sucker. And she's the executive director there of that very small shrine, but the National Shrine. And this was the subject of one of our Explore programs, Explore at the Miracle Hunter, uh, New Orleans, where we featured this uh, this amazing older shrine, one of the, the oldest shrines in the entire United States, uh, or at least Marian shrines. And uh, we'll hear about that incredible history uh, when we talk uh, with uh, Sister Carolyn Brocklin later in the show. And for people who want to check out my television series, They Might Be Saints, uh, you can go on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, tune in on EWTN on January 17th, We've got Bishop Alphonse Gallegos. He strolled the streets of Sacramento, saving souls by visiting families and mixing with the lowriders in the Latino community. I'll be profiling the Bishop of the Barrios, Alphonse Gallegos, in this program. And I really enjoyed filming this uh, episode in particular because uh, the actor who played Alphonse Gallegos, he was such the spitting image of the true uh, Bishop Gallegos, is that when we filmed him uh, dressed in all his uh, bishop regalia at the church, at his old church, People treated him like they were seeing a ghost. It was uh, they, they were so amazed to see this uh, actor who looked uh, just like the image of uh, Bishop Alphonse Gallegos. So check that one out. They might be saints uh, on Wednesday, January 17th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You can also check out my next episode of Explore with the Miracle Hunter. It'll be on January 27th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can travel with me to Pont-Maine in France, where the Virgin Mary, under the title of Our Lady of Hope, appeared to farm children into an army precipitating the end of the Franco-Prussian War. So check that one out. Explore with the Miracle Hunter Pont-Maine on January 26th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Later in the show today, we'll be looking again at the 365 Days with Mary project. For today, we've got Our Lady Help of Christians from Philipsdorf in Germany in 1866. It's an amazing apparition story. And the might-be saint of the day is Blessed Emil Smrozek, and he lived from 1887 to 1942 in Poland. He's a martyr. The question of the week, how are the miracle locations chosen for the Explorer television series? I'll try to answer that one later in the show. And we're doing a new uh, segment here on the Miracle Hunter radio show. It's called the Miracle of the Day. So around the world, miracles are happening all the time. So we're picking famous ones that line up exactly to the day's date. So for uh, January 13th, we've got the Eucharistic Miracle of Tumaco that occurred in 1906. So we'll be telling you about that one. 
for this new segment, Miracle of the Day. So stay with us for that. Let's take a look at the miracle news. We do this every week where we look at the miracles happening around the world and those things that relate to miracles. And uh, through the history of Christianity, we've seen this in uh, churches around the world, Roman Catholic and otherwise. I'm talking specifically about Greek and Russian Orthodox, most prominently where we see the streaming of myrrh uh, from uh, icons of the Virgin Mary. And there was a brand new uh, account of this, and there have been perhaps hundreds of these cases around the world uh, where we see a statue, we, statue or image weeping uh, tear, real human tears or tears of blood or water or perfumed uh, substances like myrrh. And so uh, in Fletcher, North Carolina, uh, this past week, uh, during the hierarchical, this is at a, a, a Greek Orthodox church, during the vigil for the parish feast day officiated by uh, Bishop George of Mayfield of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the main icon of Christ in the nave began streaming uh, tears of myrrh. And this was in uh, the Church of St. Nicholas in Fletcher, North Carolina. And uh, even after some myrrh was collected from the stream of the following Monday, a small pool formed shortly after, and the icon was moved to this uh, to the altar. And then on Sunday, December 28th, during the liturgy honoring the Holy Forefathers, myrrh began again to stream during uh, the Beatitude Prayer. And this miracle was witnessed by, uh, by the priest there, Father Stephen Webb, and uh, the subdeacons there, uh, and the servers as well. And so this myrrh streaming icon of Christ is already drawing the faithful who come and venerate it in the mounted print, which is a copy of the Russian Christ, the Savior, original, which is in Moscow. Um, and it's in the 16th century was when that icon was first made. So we have a new uh, weeping icon, and this is, again, in St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox Church in Fletcher, North Carolina. We'll keep you up to date to see if they do any studies. Uh, Normally, the Russian Orthodox don't do the same level of studies that the Roman Catholic uh, Church may do on such an occasion. But uh, we can add another one to the the list of these uh, miraculous icons streaming myrrh all around the world. For more information on this miracle or any other miracles happening, uh, I'll be posting this to the Facebook page of The Miracle Hunter. You can check this one out and find out more information about this and all the miracles happening around the world. Let's take a look at Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week we ask a trivia question, give it a prize, uh, the Miracle Hunter image of the faces of Mary. Uh, People who know me, my friends, know I love trivia, trivia, and on a random night, you might find me playing pub trivia somewhere, but this is Catholic Pub Trivia. And so uh, last week we had the question, which American was the most recently declared venerable in our Catholic Church? I think last week we talked about two uh, people on the path to sainthood. So check that one out if you go to EWTN.com slash radio. You can find out the audio archives or go through the EWTN app to hear that interview. But the question from last week was, which American was the most recently declared venerable? And that answer is Mother Mary Lange, who lived from 1789 to 1882, and uh, in, on June 22nd of last year, uh, Pope Francis declared her venerable. So the question for this week, we're talking today about the infant of Prague. And for those people who have seen the statue, uh, you'll see that Jesus as a child is, is wearing regal robes and has a crown and uh, looks like a king. And he is actually holding in his left hand a spherical object. And so the question is, what is the name of the spherical, spherical object that is held by the statue of the infant of Prague. If you think you know that answer and want to win the prize, the Miracle Hunter image of the faces of Mary, send me an email to uh, miraclehunter uh, at miraclehunter.com or just go to my website, miraclehunter.com, and send me a message that way. And answers and winners will be posted on the show page 
on MiracleHunter.com. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking to Father David McAvoy from the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague about uh, the devotion, the Infant of Prague, whose feast day is tomorrow. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter, the feast day of the infant of Prague. Uh, We might call it a miraculous statue of the child Jesus uh, stemming from the 16th century. And there's different legends and stories about uh, where that uh, statue came from. And we're so excited uh, to talk today uh, about that miraculous statue and that devotion that stemmed from that statue with Father David McAvoy. He's uh, joining us from the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague and talking to us about this, uh, this statue of infinite, the infant of Prague and some of the, the devotion that uh, people around the world have uh, gravitated to and honored this, uh, this, this statue and the devotion over the centuries. We're so grateful to be joined by uh, Father David. Welcome to the show today. Hey, thank you very much. Now, uh, Father McAvoy, when we talk about uh, the infant of Prague, uh, this is something that many Catholics know. They can kind of have a sense. They have a sense of what that statue looks like of the of the child Jesus, dressed in regal robes and holding that that orb, and uh, and sort of uh, being uh, reminding us uh, that Jesus is Christ the King. But perhaps many people don't know uh, where this comes from and why this is so famous and popular. Uh, as as it turns out, it, it stems back centuries. So uh, let's take it back a little bit. What, who, uh, what do we know about the origins of the infant of Prague? Well, it's a devotion. We know the particular statue has been in a Carmelite church uh, in Prague for uh, close to 400 years now. I think in uh, another four years, we say it's been there exactly 400 years, since 1628. And it really starts with a devotion to the child Jesus that was very popular throughout the Middle Ages. There are a lot of images of the child Jesus. And this particular uh, image, this statue, uh, came from Spain. And uh, some of the legends say that it originally belonged to Teresa of Avila. Whether that's true or not, we're not sure, but it definitely had a Carmelite connection. There was a Spanish noblewoman who had the statue, and she married a Bohemian nobleman and brought the statue from Spain to well, what's the day would be the Czech Republic. And uh, as we know in Latin America, uh, lots of the statues of our Blessed Mother, our Lord, the various saints, are uh, raised with uh, you know beautiful clothing. This particular statue uh, had vestment-type uh, clothing on it with a uh, crown on the head of the infant Jesus. It was given to this um, Carmelite church after being passed down a generation or two from this family in Bohemia. And, uh, well, it's been in that church ever since. Amazing, and so uh, that, that's great uh, background information of this. And this is a, a devotion that you know, stems back centuries, but it's still alive uh, even today. We talk about your League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague existing today, and many people uh, have this devotion. How, what what can we talk about? How this how the devotion uh, develop over time, or how has it taken root? Sure. Well, the story, which uh, is the true with this particular statue in the church. Uh, in Prague, there was a period of time where the church was attacked, 
All the statues were just thrown on a pile of rubbish. And then one of the Carmelite friars came and retrieved the statue, uh, repaired it. And uh, the story goes that uh, the infant Christ actually spoke to the to the friar. His name was Father Cyril. And uh, the text says, as Jesus said, have mercy on me, I'll have mercy on you. Give me hands, then I will give you peace. He repaired the statue. And then the logo that seems to be with the statue everywhere is the Christ promise, the more you honor me, the more I will bless you. And basically, if you look at the devotion, uh, the statue is really a um, representation of certain themes in Christianity. First of all, the incarnation, that uh, God became human and a little child, but then the regal robe and the, uh, the orb that the child is holding shows that this is also Christ the King. And uh, it's a devotion which well, it would appeal to children as they look at Christ in that image, but it uh, appeals to everyone. And the devotion spread all over the world. And I think because St. Therese of the Child Jesus took that name and had a great devotion to the Child Jesus, then the devotion of the infant of Prague has gone parallel to that devotion, I'd say, in the last century among Carmelites. Amazing. We're talking today with Father David McAvoy about the infant Jesus of Prague uh, statue and devotion. And uh, there are many miracle stories that are associated with this infant of Prague, and uh, people can learn more about that. Uh, but you, you talk about the, the devotion having increased and being attached, perhaps, uh, to St. Therese of Lisieux. Um Talk about the formation of the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague that you're a part of. Yes, well, here at uh, our Carmelite headquarters of our province of the Most Pure Heart of Mary in uh, Darien, Illinois, we're a suburb of Chicago, uh, we have the National Shrine of St. Therese, but we also have a shrine here uh, to the Infant of Prague. And I was just saying that, my interpretation, I suppose, is that because Therese had such a devotion to uh, the Child Jesus, she took it in her name as Sister Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face, that I think that probably has also maybe increased that devotion. We have the League of the uh, Miraculous Infant of Prague uh, here, we have many people who have that devotion. The point of it is really to promote the devotion so it wouldn't be lost, so that people could pray through the intercession of through the infant of Prague. And then um, also uh, generous donations that come, every donation that comes into the League goes to help our missions around the world, uh, where we have uh, you know many people who are, have a tremendously strong faith but probably don't have the you know, economic resources that we have here in the United States and Canada. Wonderful. And we'll ask you again at the end, but f please say the website where people could go uh, to learn more about this uh, this league and perhaps make a donation. Sure. Uh, the website, uh, go on to uh, infantsprog, infantsprog.org. Very simple. And that will lead you right into that website. It gives more information about the devotion uh, to the infant of Prague. And we see that uh, statue of the child Jesus, the infant of Prague, and so many churches around the country, uh, at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., you know, there's so many different uh, ethnic uh, devotions, and, and there is a beautiful statue of the infant of Prague there uh, in, in the Basilica, and uh, also with a uh, kind of a mural of the uh, church in what's now the Czech Republic, and then that statement, the more you honor me, the more I will bless you. Wonderful. We're talking today with Father David McAvoy from the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague. And when we talk about uh, this devotion, and perhaps if we want to make a distinction, of course, uh, when we think of, about Jesus, we think about uh, Jesus as a child or 
uh, Jesus crucified or, or Jesus uh, resurrected or, or, or ascended into heaven. Um, uh, we think of Jesus in various ways. When we think of the infant of Prague, how does this perhaps devotion differ uh, when we talk about uh, the way people engage with Jesus when they, when they have the framework of Jesus as the infant of Prague? Well, it's a, a statue um, which, again, brings out certain basic themes and dogmas of our faith, uh, that Christ uh, is both human and divine. Certainly the crown on the statue, the fact that the Lord is blessing us with his uh, right hand, that he's holding the globe, the earth in his hands, those are all signs of the divinity of Christ, while the child is uh, that great mystery that uh, well, Francis of Assisi was trying to put across 800 years ago when he came up with the living nativity scene, that we would actually realize that the Lord is one like us in all things but sin. And uh, it was St. Therese had this beautiful statement. She said, how could a God so powerful become a little child? And if that God who created the universe could become a tiny infant, like we see depicted in the Statue of the Prague, then God must be about mercy and love. And I just think that's a beautiful statement as we reflect on the devotion. Wonderful. We're talking today with Father David McAvoy about the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague. And now I know that there uh, are many people who have this devotion around the world and who connect with your League with donations and otherwise. Do you ever hear stories of uh, miracles or, or blessings of people who have this strong devotion and they might attribute it to, uh, to the Infant of Prague? Well, I suppose... Um... I, I cannot tell you about any uh, you know personal instance of where I would refer to a miracle. But you know what is a miracle? Uh, a miracle uh, is where we see the manifestation of uh, God's power and love and mercy in ways that may surprise us. And uh, definitely through the many many prayers of people uh, to the Lord Jesus, you know, as the infant of Prague, I, I you know I would say that that is miraculous. Now, in my own situation, I have my own devotion to the infant of Prague. And uh, when I was a 10-year-old boy, uh, my older brother was in a junior seminary, and my family made a trip to that seminary up in Hamilton, Massachusetts, from our home in Leavenworth, Kansas. And the Carmelites had a gift shop there, and there's the most beautiful statue of the infant of Prague. And as a little kid, I was really drawn to it, and my parents got me that statue. Now, uh, I'm 71 years old now. I'm working in our provincial office. I still have that particular statue. And particularly at Christmas time, uh, I reflect on it, and uh, realized that, well, you know, was it an accident that I received that statue and had the devotion and also that devotion to St. Therese, or uh, did it manifest itself in a Carmelite vocation down the pike? So mm. I suppose there's many uh, miracles out there, but uh, that, that would be my own miracle, I guess, that the Lord brought me to the Carmelite religious life. That's wonderful. And uh, for people who want to find out more, more about the history of the Infant of Prague, or perhaps the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague that you're a part of, uh, what's the best way for people to connect and, and find out more? Well, I think, first of all, most people are, are connected on the uh, Internet, so just go on to the website infantprog.org, O-R-G, and uh, that would give you background about the uh, uh, Miraculous Infant of Prague, and, and also a little bit about the work of uh, our own Carmelite League as we promote the devotion, and uh, we remember people in that league in our prayers and masses. Uh, we do that every day. I know at our own house chapel here, as we celebrate mass, we pray for the members of that league for their intentions. And 
that's uh, one way to keep uh, connected with us, and the, and the funds definitely go to help uh, our missions. I was recently in Honduras uh, visiting our uh, new parish. We've been there now for about two years. I was overwhelmed by maybe the material poverty, but the tremendous faith of people who will walk for two hours to come to Mass, and, mm. and the beautiful children uh, in, in these areas. So we know the, the financial contributions always go to a good cause. Wonderful. Well, we're so grateful to you, Father David McAvoy, joining us today to talk to us about the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague and the history of this incredible devotion. And I encourage people to check out that shrine, the National Shrine of uh, St. Therese there in uh, Darien, Illinois. It's in my home state. I've been there myself, and it's a beautiful place for people who have a devotion to St. Therese and also would like to find out more about the Infant of Prague. Thanks so much, Father David, for joining us on today's program. Thank you very much. God bless you. God bless. That was Father David McAvoy joining us from the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague. Check out infantprog.org for more information on this devotion or how to contribute uh, to the worldwide work that they do in the name of Jesus under this amazing title. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be looking at the question of the week. How are the miracle locations chosen for the Explore television series? We'll try to answer that one when we're right back. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. I love getting your questions. People write in from around the world with questions about miracles happening in today's world and those that have happened centuries ago. My email box is full of interesting things, you might say. And But I love getting the questions uh, that I get when I give a talk. I give about 20 talks uh, per year. I talk at a, a shrine, at a parish, at a conference. These days I've been talking about a lot about Eucharistic miracles because of the Eucharistic revival. But I usually talk for about 45 minutes, and at the end, I answer questions for 15, 30, or longer minutes. Uh, people have a lot of questions about those things uh, that are miraculous. And one interesting question, I think uh, people have asked me quite a bit recently, so I might as well answer this one. The question is, how are the miracle locations chosen for the Explore television series? Uh, for people who don't know, I have a television series on EWTN that airs at 6 p.m. Eastern time uh, every week. And they're the miracle locations of the world, the famous miracle locations. And uh, we've uh, done places in uh, all over Europe and Italy and France. And uh, we've been through England and Ireland. And uh, just recently, this past year, I was in Poland and Lithuania. And I was in Brazil and Argentina and Mexico. So we've got a lot of great uh, episodes coming up. So uh, when you ask, how are the miracle locations chosen? Uh, I always try to pick the most famous miracles uh, in the history of Catholicism. And believe it or not, uh, for me, uh, studying miracles for as many years as I've studied them, some of these things are very famous to me, and they really stand out. And you can say the city name to me, and I know exactly uh, the miracle that I'd feature. But for a lot of people, Catholics and otherwise, they hear this uh, a place uh, like Pont-Main in France. It's one of the most highly approved Marian apparitions. The feast day is coming right up on January 17th. 
but most people don't know uh, what happened there. And so I try to present the stories of the, the greatest miracles and mysteries and marvels in history, in Catholicism. And so that's what inspires the uh, locations to be chosen. People can find out more at explorewiththemiraclehunter.com or again, tune in on uh, Saturdays at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time uh, to check out my series, Explore with the Miracle Hunter. And we've got a bunch of new episodes coming out this year. So stay tuned for that. Now let's take a look at the 365 Days with Mary project. We do this every week where we look at the Marian devotion of the day as it lines up exactly to the day's date. We all know uh, Lourdes, February 11th, or Fatima, May 13th, or Guadalupe, December 12th. But believe it or not, there's a different Marian devotion for each and every day for the calendar year. We're talking about uh, feast days. We're talking about big miracles. We're talking about the building of basilicas or other ways that Mary's commemorated. Uh, every day around the year. And so one of the places that I have not been to yet, but that I intend to, is Our Lady Help of Christians in Philipsdorf in Germany in the year 1866. And Philipsdorf is a pilgrimage site in the north of Bohemia. And in this town, there lived a weaver by the name Magdalena Cade, who lived from 1835 to 1903. In 1866, she was very ill. And on January 13th at 4 a.m., the Blessed Virgin appeared to her and promised her healing. The next day, she was miraculously cured and lived a healthy life for many years after that. And her house was given the title of Garden House, the House of Grace, due to the visit of the Virgin Mary and became visited by so many pilgrims that a Garden Capel Chapel of Grace was built and was later replaced by a monumental church under the title of Maria Helferin de Christians, or Marian Helfram der Christen, uh, that's Mary Help of Christians, later made a minor basilica. So this is a site of an approved Marian apparition. And that's Our Lady Help of Christians from Philipsdorf in Germany in 1866. For more information on this fascinating devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions from around the world, you can go to 365dayswithmary.com. You can pick up the book or download the free app, 365 Days with Mary, on the iOS App Store. Or you can go to the Facebook page and join any of the 10,000 followers who follow 365 Days with Mary. So starting this year, we're starting a new segment here on the Miracle Hunter radio show. It's called The Miracle of the Day, uh, much like uh, the uh, 365 Days with Mary or uh, the the Might Be Saint of the Day. We would try to find the biggest and best miracle that happened on January 13th, which is today. And so it is the Eucharistic miracle of Tumaco, which was the one that's chosen for today. So on January 13th in 1906, on the tiny island of Tumaco in the Pacific Ocean, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the earth was heard trembling in a terrifying earthquake that lasted about 10 minutes. All the inhabitants there gathered in front of the church, and they begged the pastor, Father Gerardo Laurondo, and his assistant, Father Julian, to organize immediately a procession with the Blessed Sacrament. And the sea was rising and had already covered part of the shore, and an enormous mountain of water had already been formed, which would quickly be transformed into an immense wave. Father Gerardo, who was terrified, at once consumed all the consecrated hosts from the ciborium, leaving aside only the big host, and he turned to the people, he exclaimed, Let us all go to the beach, my children, and may God have mercy on us. As if reassured by the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, all proceeded to march, weeping and crying out to God. And just as he arrived at the beach, Father Lorondo, with the monstrance in hand, courageously went down to the shoreline, and at the exact moment when the wave was arriving, he raised the consecrated host before all the people with a firm hand and a heart filled with faith and traced the sign of the cross in the air, 
There was a moment of the highest solemnity. The wave advanced just a little more. But even before Father Lorando and Father Julian noticed what had happened, the people, seized with amazement, cried out, uh, Un milagro, un milagro, a miracle, a miracle. Indeed, as it had stopped by an invisible force uh, of nature, the powerful wave had been threatened to destroy the village of Tumaco, suddenly came to a halt and began to recede, while the sea quickly returned to its normal level. The inhabitants of Tumaco were filled with a sense of euphoria that was uncontainable, uh, rejoicing that they had been saved by Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. To all who render their heartfelt gratitude, news of the miracle of Tumaco spread throughout the world, so much so that Father Lorondo received letters with requests for prayer as far away as Europe and otherwise. And that's the Eucharistic miracle of Tumaco. That's the miracle of the day from January 13th. And we uh, have this from the uh, Eucharistic Miracles of the World exhibit. For more information on miracles of the day and the miracle of the day, you can check us out at uh, miraclehunter.com. Let's take a look at the sainthood news. We do this every week where we talk about they might be saints. Of course, this connects with my television series, They Might Be Saints, which airs on EWTN on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's about Americans on the path to sainthood and the search for canonization miracles. And we're talking about servants of God, venerables and blesseds, those people from America who have uh, who are all lined up to be saints but need their miracles to advance. And so the sainthood news is is that last month during the audience granted to uh, Cardinal Marcelo Semeraro, the prefect for the Dicastery of the Causes of Saints, uh, Pope Francis announced that the same Dicastery will promulgate the decree regarding the heroic virtues of the servant of God, Alberto Barretta, born Enrico, a professed priest of the Order of the Friars Minor Capuchin, he was born on August 28, 1916 in Milan and died on August 10th in Bergamo, also in Italy. And according to the uh, Dicastery for the Causes of Saints, he was a professed priest of the Order of the Friars Minor Capuchin. He worked as a doctor with great commitment in the San Francesco de Graju Hospital. And toward the sick, he was very patient, sensitive with listening, trying to convey the Christian value of suffering. And he promoted many initiatives for the sick, poor, and lepers, for whom he favored the construction, uh, favored with the construction of a hospital, and that is the might be uh, that is the uh, who's coming down the pipeline uh, when we talk about saints, and that is servant of God Alberto Barretta. Uh, he will he is a venerable now with one miracle he'll be a blessed, with two miracles he'll be named a saint. Let's take a look at the might be saint of the day. We look at all the saints. Uh, throughout Christian history, we have as many as 10,000 uh, canonized saints, and we have others who are servants of God, venerables, and blesseds. And uh, each day for throughout the calendar year, we look at those people who haven't quite made it uh, to the finish line of saint. Uh, they are uh, venerables and blesseds who need a miracle. And in this case, we have Blessed Emil Surzamek from Poland, who lived from 1887 to 1942. And he's a martyr whose memorial is today on January 13th. And he was born on September 29th in 1887 in uh, Slaskę in Poland. And he's a priest of the Archdiocese of Katowice in Poland. And he was simultaneously serving as a pastor of the parish of St. Mary in Katowice and chancellor of the diocesan Curia. And along with being a strong spiritual leader, Father Emil was a historian specializing in his native Silesia. And he wrote on a number of topics, including history, social issues, ethnography, theology, and literature. On April 8, 1940, he was arrested by the occupying Nazis, and over the course of several months, he was imprisoned, harassed, and tortured in a concentration camp in Gusen, 
and Ducal, and he was a particular target for the guards as he never broke, and he spent his times ministering to the other prisoners, and he is a martyr. He died on January 13, 1942, in a bathhouse of the prison camp of uh, Dachau in Germany by having a series of ice-cold streams of water dumped on him until he died of shock and exposure. He was declared venerable on March 29, 1999 by Pope John Paul II in a decree of martyrdom, and he was beatified on June 13 of the same year by Pope John Paul II as well. And with one miracle, he will move on from being Blessed Emil to Saint Emil. For more information about this amazing future saint and all the other might-be saints, you can check it out at theymightbesaints.com. You can also tune into the television series on Wednesdays, on this Wednesday, January 17th, at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The episode of Bishop Alphonse Gallegos is featured in They Might Be Saints. He strolled the streets of Sacramento, saving souls by visiting families and mixing with lowriders in the Latino community. I'll be profiling the Bishop of the Barrios. Alphonse Gallego. So check that one out, January 17th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking with Ursuline's sister Carolyn Brockland about the Shrine of Our Lady of Prom Sucker. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. One of the great miraculous devotions that we have in the history of the United States is Our Lady of Prom Sucker. And her feast day is this week. So we're excited to do a replay of an older interview with Ursuline's sister, Carolyn Brockland, the executive director of the Shrine of Our Lady of Prom Sucker. People who tune into this show know that I love to travel around the world and look at going to the great places of miracles. And we've done episodes of Explore with the Miracle Hunter in Italy and France and all over. But I love when we can look at miracles happening here in the United States. And there's only, there are only a few places where the Vatican has shown any kind of recognition or support of miracles that are claimed. Miracles happen every day. But we have a big one that happened in New Orleans, Louisiana, or at least we have a Marian title there and a statue of Mary that's been canonically crowned by Rome. And so it's a perfect time right around the feast day of Our Lady of Prom Sucker to be uh, talking about that great Marian devotion with an Ursuline sister, Sister Carolyn Brockland, the executive director of the Shrine of Our Lady of Prom Sucker. Welcome to the show today. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, it's it's great to talk with you, and I, I feel like I've uh, picked up this devotion of my on my own, uh, having done the the program. That is such a, a meaningful devotion uh, in in uh, in New Orleans, especially. Uh, and uh, you being stationed at the shrine, you're a perfect expert to talk about what the meaning is for for the people there. First of all, what is this statue, and how did it end up in New Orleans? The statue came to New Orleans in 1810, and the story behind it is. A, a rather long one, but I'll try to make it brief and yet clear. When uh, Louisiana became from, it was transferred from being a French colony to a Spanish colony for 40 years. And in 1803, for just a brief time, but of course they didn't know it then, it was re-retroceded to France. So it became a French colony again. And this is shortly after the French Revolution, and the sisters knew about the women in France who had been guillotined because of wanting to live religious life. And so the sisters 
at that time, the, because the community had been a Spanish colony for 40 years, about half the sisters were French and half were Spanish. And the Spanish sisters were especially afraid, so they went to Cuba. They, they moved out. And so the French sisters were left with all the work and half the people. So one of the sisters wrote to her cousin in France, who had been an Ursuline sister there, but, of course, with the French Revolution and all, they couldn't practice that. So she and another pious lady had started a school in their town. And when she received the letter from the sister here, she was very interested in coming. And of course, the letter said, don't just come by yourself, but bring other <laughs> people to help us. So, But she felt, you know, only uh, out of courtesy, she should speak to the bishop. And so she did. She met with the bishop, and she asked if she could go to Louisiana to help the sisters there. And I, I tell the story, it's sort of like when you're a parent and your child wants something, and you don't feel right about saying yes, but you don't feel right about saying no. So you say, go ask your dad or go ask your mom. And so what, what the bishop did was tell the sister, ask the pope. Now, he, was, pope he wasn't was, easy to access, though. That's the interesting point. Absolutely, absolutely. The pope was a prisoner of Napoleon at the time. So it was really like mission impossible, as <laughs> that old TV show used to call things. So she prayed to Mary, and she said, Mary, if I get a prompt and favorable answer, I will have you honored in Louisiana as Our Lady of Prompt Supper. Of course, the words were French, and the word sucker means help, so we often translate it as quick help. So sure enough, she wrote to the Pope, and what was considered record time, that he even got the letter, and that she got a reply that was favorable. It was considered a prompt reply. So in this age, in this age of email, we forget about how hard it was to uh, communicate with people back then, Absolutely. especially someone I mean, being captured by Napoleon. Had to cross the Alps just to get there, and he was the prisoner of Napoleon. So whether he would be allowed to receive the letter, we, nobody knew. But indeed, it did work. She got the letter to him, and he got the answer back to her. So she commissioned a statue. It's a wood-carved statue about four feet tall of Mary holding the child. And because the statue was going to be shipped to the United States, instead of holding her other hand out, as many statues do, she's holding the child with both hands. So the arms are, are close to her body. The other thing that's special about the statue is if you look carefully at the bottom of her dress, the garments are swishing like she's coming in a hurry mm -hmm. to help us. So she brought the statue with her, and it took until 1810 for her to arrive. Things took a lot, a lot longer then than they do now because things had to happen slowly and by boat. But she brought the statue, and from that time on, it was a place of honor in our chapel. So at the time of the Battle of New Orleans, which was part of the War of 1812, but was really the very last battle in 1815, she was in a place of honor in the Sisters' Chapel. And as the people prepared for that battle, the men, of course, who were of fighting of age and ability were out on the field training and building the ramparts and all that they needed to try to defend the city. And the women of the city and the people who were not able to fight spent nights in the chapel. They prayed all day and all night for several days before the battle that it would be a victory for us so that the city would not be invaded and looted and ravaged, as so many times happens when troops are victorious and run amok. So the morning 
of the Battle of New Orleans, which is January 8th. They were still at Mass. They had Mass at 6.30 in the morning, and they were just at communion when a messenger came in and said, the victory is ours. So they were so thrilled. I mean, the battle just started that morning as soon as it was daylight, and it was already over. There was very little loss of life on the American side, and, and so it was a very decisive victory for us. So that's and the Americans were really outnumbered in that battle, correct? Absolutely, and it was a ragtag battle, battle um, a ragtag group of people. Um, Andrew Jackson came with a few of his cane tucks, as they called them around here, <laughs> and they were the best trained of all, but he included people of color, he included whatever... Um, the militia the locals had formed, they all worked together to protect the city. And that's another thing that's very important to us. But it wasn't just people who came from outside, but the people of the city united with Andrew Jackson and his troops to defend us. Yeah, I think the Andrew Jackson connection is one of the more fascinating aspects of this uh, Our Lady of Prompt Stalker story in the shrine there. We're talking today with uh, Ursuline's sister, Carolyn Brocklin, the executive director of the Shrine of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker in New Orleans. And uh, you know, from, from, what, from what I could tell, when Andrew Jackson arrived, he, he invited everybody to pray, uh, no matter what their religious uh, de- denomination was, and even invited uh, uh, the, the Catholics there, and, and there were many, of course, to pray for victory. Uh, and then after the victory, he came back to thank them. Tell that story a little bit, what happened uh, where uh, Andrew Jackson came back to thank the nuns. Yes. Well, Andrew Jackson, as we know, has a checkered history, and he's been uh, put down in a lot of ways in recent years as we realized the the things that he did that we would not uphold as heroic. But for the people of New Orleans, he was the hero. And for him to make a point to come and visit the sisters and thank them for their prayers afterwards was considered extraordinary because he was not a religious man, as far as we know. Absolutely. And we feature that episode of Explore with the Miracle Hunter in New Orleans. We, t- we show a, a, uh, the scene of Andrew Jackson returning to thank the nuns for their uh, prayers and uh, for Our Lady of, of Quick Help, as you might say, for the quick help mm-hmm. of Mary mm-hmm. to, to win that day through a miracle. And so uh, we're talking today with Sister Carolyn Brocklin, an Ursuline sister and electri- uh, executive director of the shrine there in New Orleans. If uh, Beyond that, there there was a, a fire miracle as well. But what is the um, what is this title of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker and this statue in particular? What meaning does it have uh, for the city of New Orleans as they, it goes through its own struggles, even in modern times? Well, part of it is that they made a vow on January eighth, eighteen fifteen, that every year there would be a mass of Thanksgiving on that date, and it's still being done this year. The Archbishop always comes and presides and then other bishops from the province, because um, the whole state of Louisiana is under the patronage of Our Lady of Prompt Succor. So in many cities in the, in the state, there's a parish or a church called Our Lady of Prompt Succor. So, Amazing. But, and when we, when we talk about uh, this Marian title and sort of the recognition that Rome has showed towards her, um, talk a little bit about the canonical crowning and the feast day and the uh, declaration of her being the patroness of, of New Orleans. Why is all that significant and rare? 
Well, New Orleans is a city that's very proud of its heritage, and so we have lots of celebrations. So for the people of New Orleans to celebrate in a religious way is just part of our culture. And so people from everywhere come, or if they can't come, they write in and ask us to pray for their intentions, and we put those papers in a basket and bring it up at the offertory of the Mass as a way to... um, Tell, tell God in a physical way that we want to pray for all the people who have asked for our prayers. And actually, we do that at every Mass. We have daily Mass, and we pray for all the people who have asked for our prayers. That's beautiful. And I encourage people, if they're in the New Orleans area visiting, to stop by that chapel. It's so beautiful. It's a small chapel, the Our Lady of Prompt Sucker uh, Votive Chapel, the National Shrine there. And um, if people want to find out more, I mean, of course, they can tune into this program, Explore with the Miracle Hunter. But if they're interested in uh, in visiting or cultivating their own devotion to Our Lady of Prompt Sucker, what's the best website for the shrine where people can connect? Our our website is www shrineolps.com. Wonderful. Well, uh, we're so grateful to you, uh, Sister Carolyn Brocklin. As we wrap up the interview today, uh, please leave us with your thoughts on why Our Lady of Prompt Sucker is such an important patroness, even though uh, this these, miracle, these big miracles happened a long time ago. Talk about for the state of our world and the United States why Our Lady of Prompt Sucker is an appropriate patroness for people to turn to. Well, we pray to her often in, in the city of New Orleans as we fight against what our bishop has commissioned a prayer to say is the battle of today against violence, murder, and racism. And we all, wherever we live and however we come to God, need Mary's help in praying to God for an end to violence, murder, and racism. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sister Carolyn Brocklin, the Executive Director of the Shrine of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker. Thank you so much for joining us on today's program. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's all the time we have for today's show. If you missed any of this episode or want to catch up on past episodes, you can go to EWTN.com slash radio. Check out the audio archives or download the free EWTN app. I'd like to thank our guest today, Father David McAvoy, joining us today to talk about the League of the Miraculous Infant Jesus of Prague. And also, we heard from Ursuline's sister, Carolyn Brocklin, the executive director of the Shrine of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker, talking to us about the miracles of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker. Check out my show, Explore with the Miracle Hunter, about Pont Maine. On January 27th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we travel to Pont Maine in northwest France where the Virgin Mary, under the title of Our Lady of Hope, appeared to farm children and to an army precipitating the end of the Franco-Prussian War. And I'd like to thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where from claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. Talk to you next week.